You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. I'm here on the cell phone, actually, not the Zoom this time, so there won't be a video with my friend David Paul, who is a retired Suffolk County police officer from up in New York. He lives in upstate New York now. He's retired. He's written a book on a serial killer. But more importantly for you guys' information, he's worked a lot on MS-13. And, you know, we do organized crime primarily on this show. We've strayed out into serial killers a little bit, but we like organized crime and learning about that. He knows about Russian organized crime. He even speaks Russian pretty fluently, it looks to me like. So uh, now I couldn't judge that because <laughs> you could say anything to me in a Russian accent and I'd just assume you were speaking Russian. David, welcome. Hi, Gary. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, cool. You know, I saw you on LinkedIn, I think, for I first saw you. I'm always just noodling around trying to find somebody, a guest for the show that sounds interesting to me. And, and I love getting other ex-coppers out there that are doing this kind of media stuff or writing books, doing documentary films like I am. I've done a couple, three books and done four documentary films altogether, as these guys know. And so I love talking to you guys. So let's talk a little bit about your and my police experience. Now, I was in the organized crime unit, and that's for most of my career. I did a little bit of everything. What did you do back there in Suffolk County? Well, I'll tell you what. I was in the car my whole career. I just didn't have enough political juice to uh, <laughs> to make the phone ring. Yeah, I know um, what you mean. <laughs> yeah, and you know we had a saying: "Great job, terrible career." But <laughs> it, I had a lot of fun, especially my first, you know, ten, eleven years. So I worked actually in Brentwood Bayshore, which is in, in Suffolk County, Long Island, and. It's probably the biggest hub of MS-13 guys in New York State, to be honest with you. So I was in patrol for uh, you know, the whole 21 years. My last two, 13 or 14, I did the midnights, which, uh, as you would know, not a lot of good decisions made after midnight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I tell you what, the worst call is that... About 4.30 or so in the morning, disturbance or domestic disturbance or just disturbance because at 4.30 in the morning, people have been drinking all night long and they are nuts. And nothing good comes up. Disturbance call after about 4, 4.30 in the morning. The earlier ones, you kind of get, well, you go here and you go there and, and right. send everybody their own separate way. Boy, by 4, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, those Sunday mornings, especially. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you, partner. You're just running all night, you know, 20 calls, and one call to call, shots fired. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we're the, believe it or not, Suffolk County is the 11th largest department in the country. Hmm. Because, I mean, it actually pretty much entailed the five towns, the five big towns of Suffolk County, Long Island. They have your East Hampton, South Hampton, they do their thing, but. You know, we're bigger than Boston, we're bigger than Houston. I think manpower and uh, personnel altogether was 3,000, and of course we never came close to that. That's why we were you know, shutting cars here and there, and unfortunately a lot of that happened on the midnight, so now we become the only sheriff in town. But I had a great time, it was a great job, and, and the guys and girls, 99.5% are doing the right thing out there. Yeah. Yeah, that that was my experience, too. A majority of us all do the right thing. And the people that do the wrong thing, many times, 
Some of them are just spontaneous. You just, it's hot. You can't take it anymore. I did a few bad things and I don't mean stealing <sighs> anything, but, but, but I got an extra lick in because I just couldn't take it anymore. And, and so I feel for these guys that are getting in so much trouble for those displays of temper oh, that it's tough. It's, it's tough. It's, it's really, it's really disgusting what's happened over the last, yeah, you know, whatever yeah. it is, 18 months. And, and look, let's face it. Defeat violence, you need greater violence. That's well, just a matter of fact. Yeah, I mean, well, we don't need to go down that path. It's uh, <laughs> it's tough, and I don't know. I couldn't. I wouldn't do it today. I know that. I don't know about no. you, but I wouldn't go back today. I mean, it was cool being out of patrol. Now I was out of patrol an awful lot of my career. So you spent all your career in patrol, and you know what it is. It's just one uncontrolled situation after another, and you're supposed to bring some control to this uncontrolled situation. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah, no, it's exactly what it is. And it's different than being a detective because obviously, like guys like you, when you're a detective, you take that case home with you. And pretty much my day is over when it's over. But, you know, I was a guy that the detective squad would always dial up or ask me to come yeah. in and say, hey, you know, oh, we're yeah. looking for this guy. We're oh, yeah. For that guy. <laughs> I know you. I had to have one guy and try to have at least one gung ho guy that would work with me and do a little bit extra because you could be invaluable to a detective. You can't be out there everywhere and you're out close to what he's looking at. And to get right. a guy that'll like do something. Because everybody, a lot of them will just be mad at you because you're a detective and they're in patrol car. But I was one of those guys when I was in patrol. I was a the guy they'd call too. And when I went into detective unit way, I found guys out. And you get a reputation among other detectives. Oh, call this guy. He's working dog watch over there. Call him. He'll do something for you. He won't just like blow you off. Yeah. No, I mean, I can remember one situation where we had been off for a few days and me and my partner come into the precinct and probably had like 15 minutes before we really had it roll out. And uh, one of the detectives, he's like, hey, can I talk to you? I'm like, yeah, what's going on? He says, last night we had a cab driver shot in the face three times with a 45 caliber. Mm. And he actually, he did survive. He needed like 200 staples in his face. And as you know, a lot of times in police work, they usually charge what they think they can find the guy guilty at. So they don't upcharge. Yeah. But instead of reassault they did charge attempted in this case and then the other thing about working the midnights was we were the only guys out there so we were able to talk to people yeah. and i always kind of try to talk to people civilly i mean if you were going to give me a hard time well then i'll give you a hard time but we roll up on this kid on a bike and i thought he was maybe 15 or 16 he winds up being like 23 he was just kind of small and i said hey man what's up and he says, oh, yeah, good. You know, I worked down in the uh, industrial factory on Pioneer Drive. I'm like, oh, that's cool. It's like, yeah, you know, I'll just get back home. I live a few blocks away. And I just look at him and I say, hey, we shot the cab driver the other night. And he says, Jamal, everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Yes, I know what you mean there. <laughs> and it was the back words he used. And then I figured, let me test him a little bit. I said, oh, yeah, so... Uh, what does he carry that 22, right? He goes, 22? What are you talking about? He carries a 45. As a matter of fact, he robbed me at the crack house last week. <laughs> so I said, look, man, can you come in? And I said, could you come in uh, to the precinct? Because obviously it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. Can you come in tomorrow? He's like, yeah, I hate that. I hate that, man. I'll come in. So sure enough, he comes in. He's got the guy's you know, pedigree. And the funny part about it was they wanted to rob the cab driver because he was surrendering to New York City the very ne next day, so he wanted to have cash in his commissary account. Yeah. 
So we wound up locking him up upstate, bringing him back to Suffolk County for the attempted murder. Oh, um, damn. Yeah. So, but I know you were talking about before about the organized crime angle of it. The kind of the reason I got involved a little bit with the district attorney's office was that State Farm Insurance had met the district attorney at an awards ceremony. And he says, you know, Tommy, we're getting killed here in Brooklyn and Queens that the Russians, what they're doing is they'll have a car in front of you. And so they'll have two cars. And then Joe Citizen is the third car. So the first Russian car will hit their brakes. The second Russian car will hit their brakes. And Joe Citizen will ram into that second Russian car. Meanwhile, the first one is in the wind, right? Yeah. So now you have Joe Citizen saying, oh, I saw the whole thing, officer. And, you know, he got cut off. And the guy took off, but now you have four or five guys rolling out of the car that Joe Citizen hit, and they're all getting anywhere from eight to ten to twelve thousand dollars for personal injuries. Yeah. So Spoda says, you know, maybe I can, Tommy Spoda is the DA at the time. He says, maybe I can help you out with that. So there's a thing that if you are domiciled in the county, that we could go anywhere in the state to go lock you up because mm-hmm. New York City police would say, no, it's got to be individual fifty grand for us to go find somebody in insurance fraud and the FBI would say a hundred grand. So we would go into Brooklyn and go knock on the door and give him a little spiel and I'd say, where's Ivan? And he's like, oh, he's in the bathroom. Oh, tell him to come out here. Are you Ivan? Yes, I'm Ivan. Okay, turn around. You're under arrest. We snap the cuffs on him and we bring him back to Suffolk County. So at the end of the day, we were in that million dollar range as far as locking these guys up for the insurance fraud and State Farm was pretty happy about it. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Yeah, that Russian organized crime, pretty strong there in New York City, the whole area, Long Island and all around in that area. Oh, yeah. And the city and the NYPD, the Jersey PD, the FBI, they really knocked the hell out of them in Brooklyn in the late 90s. Oh, did they? Oh, uh, yeah, they really did. But the scam guys are still there, you know, just yeah. like I was saying with the insurance. Yeah. So. We had, you know, these ethnic groups many times come in. We had a group of Somalis that were doing something like that. Wow. Having these accidents and always making an insurance claim. So anyhow, before we get started too much further with MS-13, let's talk a little bit about your book, Unearthing a Serial Killer. Sure. So Unearthing a Serial Killer was released on Labor Day weekend of 2015. I was kind of proud of it because it was about two days or three days before my first year of retirement anniversary. So I felt like I had gotten something done, you know, that first year. And the funny, strange, not funny, funny, but I grew up in Yonkers, New York, and I was in the Army in 1985, and a Westchester County police officer was murdered on the Sawmill River Parkway, which is basic 20 minutes north of the West Side Highway that goes into Manhattan. And I was home on leave when he was assassinated, and the next day, the same guy kidnaps a woman out of an IBM business office. He takes her in her vehicle up to the uh, Catskills region in New York. And he proceeds to murder her there. And then uh, he scalped her and he degloved her face. Mm. And her, Yeah. And her name was Beverly Capone. So the intention of the bad guy, whose name is Alex J. Mengel, was to actually wear not only the scalp, but to actually wear her face. Oh, my God. And, yeah. And get through customs up in Canada. And what he found out due to his skeletal structure, facial structure, obviously he wasn't going to be able to wear this woman's teeth. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he does make it through up in Canada. And the guy wasn't a brain surgeon by any means. So he did a lot of things very cunningly. 
he did a lot of things right as far as his criminal sophistication, but he wound up staying in Beverly Capone's vehicle. Oh, yeah. So there's a big mall up there in a the suburb of Toronto, and this guy's just an amazing cop. His name is Clive Richards, and he's just doing that thing that we all do. When you get that notification of, hey, this guy, I believe he's coming to Canada. He's got friends in Toronto. He murdered a police officer. He's kidnapped this woman, and he might be in his vehicle. And sure enough, he's going through the parking lot of this huge mall, and it's in March, and there's a lot of snow banks and you know, piles and stuff. And he says, oh, wow, that's a white Toyota. Oh. And has a New York license plate on. <laughs> oh, and that's the plate. And there's somebody sitting behind the wheel. So he actually takes off, and they have a bit of a decent pursuit, and then they have a foot pursuit. Mangle is attempting to pull something out of his waistband. And, of course, it is a gun. And Richards is now just drawn down on him, and he is ready to just put him down, and Mangle drops the gun. So the gun is the police officer's gun from Westchester, Gary Stimolowski, who he murdered. <laughs> Then they find in the car, which is Beverly Capone's car, they find the 9mm, actually, I'm sorry, it was a 380 that he killed Gary with. And the Canadians say, yeah, you know, we found this wig in there. Well, it wasn't a wig. It was Beverly Capone's scalp. Wow. So to make, you know, make a long story short, there had never been a book done on this. There had been several articles and things like that. I just made the decision to do it. Did it with a gentleman named Kevin McMurray and He's done a lot of writing over the years, and unfortunately, he took ill, but I still wanted to have Kevin's name on the book. And, you know, so we went ahead with it, and I just thought it would kind of open and close. You know, we had known about the two murders, and sure enough, I go to pick up the uh, Freedom of Information law stuff from Westchester County PD, and a sergeant at the desk, he says, you know, we always thought that Mengel had murdered that girl from the city that we found up here in Westchester County. And sure enough, just kind of followed the trail that another detective, an NYPD detective like Tony Lombardi, by the name of Tony Lombardi, had done. And we uh, definitively linked Mangle to the 1984 abduction murder of Antonella Matina. Hmm. So that's how we made, he's certainly a serial killer, and I believe he has other bodies out there. Yeah. And the bottom line with Mangle is that I can prove definitively, it's not in the book because it's still like a work in progress, all the things we've learned, that Mangle was also the catalyst for uh, Dr. Hannibal Lecter's Mr. Hyde. No, well, really. I mean, from those details, it wouldn't be surprising at all. Some author like heard about that and then incorporated it in. He, I'm sure that he would be. That whole, like, wearing people's skins and stuff, that's, God, that's happened to other places, too. That's a crazy one. That's like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty shocking. Yeah. It's really shocking. Well, it's interesting. So that's Unearthing a Serial Killer, folks. It's out there on Amazon, I'm sure. It's always a primary place exactly. to get the Kindle book. And what most people do, I think, is read Kindles anymore. A few people still get the hardbacks. It's funny you say that because that's exactly what happened. I started getting emails to the website that said, hey, I don't do this Kindle stuff. Can, do you have a paperback? Oh, really? Well, I've yeah. seen that, too. I've seen that, yeah. too. So you got to have both anymore. You really have to have both, it seems like. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So let's talk about MS-13. And we talked a little bit before we started recording. Here I am in the Midwest, and I understand Italian organized crime. And even I understand the Crips and the Bloods. Sure. And even like maybe, you know, on the West Side, 
seemed to be before I left or about the time I left, there was some kind of cartel action going on, led back directly to Mexico, but no MS-13, which is really from what down in Central America? Is it Costa Rica or El Salvador? Salvador, Clear down in Central America. And then I remember reading in the paper about this big infestation, if you will, it may not be the best word, but problems with this MS-13 gang and recruiting among other immigrants and doing things and I suppose running the narcotics up there I would imagine it's always the big money maker for these immigrant sure. gangs and in Long Island like what the hell how they get clear up in New York City so talk to us about that David sure so MS-13 as we said comes out of El Salvador and it uh, pretty much started while they were having their civil war down there in the late 70s and 80s. And the first time they were on U.S. soil was in Southern California. Like I said, once again, late 70s, very early 80s. And you know what? They just decided to meander meander east. And Brentwood is a very large Latin population, and that population was generally Puerto Rican descent. So I guess in their minds, the MS-13, maybe they thought that it would be easier to infiltrate a place like that that already had a a large Latin community. They were actually right because a lot of those people that had been there for years moved out as soon as these characters started coming in. But I mean, my first encounter with these guys, you know, let's say it was in 1994. And I mean, dumb as a stump, just in a sense, more like more like hillbillies. These were not like Latin King members who were streetwise guys from yeah. you know, New York City. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what uh, you're saying. Yeah. So anyway, in the beginning, I mean, I was taking, believe it or not, I was taking slingshots and um, box cutters off of them. And within a few years, it did go to guns. And they've, well, let's put it this way. So since 2010, uh, they're responsible for 60 murders alone on Long Island. Wow. And probably double or triple that in attempted murders. So one of the most famous ones occurred back in September of 2016. And it got national attention. It was in Brentwood, and two young ladies, Brentwood High School students, Kayla Cuevas and Nisa Mickens. They were both really good students, both basketball players. And Kayla had had something on social media with one of the MS-13 clowns. And sure enough, they were actually walking to Brentwood High School like 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon to practice. And a couple of carloads pull up. And they hacked and beat these girls to death in the middle of a residential street mm-hmm. that, that I had patrolled. And actually, President Trump had Evelyn Rodriguez, who was the mother of Kayla. He had her at the uh, State of the Union mm-hmm. in 2017. It was a remarkable, remarkable thing. But it was funny. When I retired in 2014, it seemed to explode. And, and of course, a friend of mine couldn't resist. So he, he texts me and he says, oh, man, when Red retires, you know, things go crazy. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. What actually had occurred was there were 4,000 unaccompanied minors at the Mexican-Texas border, and 4,000 of them were sent to Long Island. Oh, really? Yeah. So you're looking at 14 to 17-year-olds. And, I mean, if you do the numbers with the rule of thumb of 8% of any population are criminals. Yeah. You're looking at 320 new gangsters introduced into your towns in Long Island. And it was just it was just an explosion. And the Justice Department had come in, told the Suffolk County Police Department, we think we don't really like the way you guys are operating. What, that we're, we're making sure MS-13 doesn't murder people? And so the guys kind of, you know, if you're going to tell me I'm going to be federally indicted for doing my job, I'll just write some parking tickets. Yeah. And, right? Yeah. 
and they flourished for about the next two years. I mean, the violence was just through the roof. There was an incident in April of 2017 where they actually had female gang members lure these four teenage boys into a park in Suffolk County, and they were hacked to death. Machetes, clubs, what have you. And But as you said, with the organized crime, they're, they're transnational. I mean, they are now, they're everywhere. And they're not going to stop until they're shut down. And it took... 20 murders over two years on Long Island for a really overwhelming response. And right now, MS-13 on Long Island is not operable Mm. due to Suffolk County Police, FBI, New York State Police, and and a few other entities. But the reason I think they're actually able to thrive is that you have some very smart, very cunning people at the top with the capos and the lieutenants. And they're taking these kids literally out of, you know, a rainforest in El Salvador. And they're in Austin, Texas. And they're in Maryland. And they're in Virginia. And they're in Baltimore. And they're in Long Island. So, I mean, it's like they're at Santa's workshop. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And that's how they get with the drugs and the extortion and the murders. We just had a guy put away, got two weeks ago, a guy named Ronald Catalan, 25 years old. And they got him on three attempted murders, numerous RICO charges, racketeering drugs. He got 25 years federally. So he's not going to see the light of day for quite a while. So now, did they do kind of your typical, even like the black hand did when they first got here, they start preying on other immigrant populations, store owners and Absolutely. people like that, the kind of the, the usual, I guess, if you will. They had they brought some organization up here. Now, do you know how are they broken down? Are they broken down into some kind of a family or what, a structure of any kind, or is it real loose? Well, I think originally, even till today, I think it's pretty loose that I wouldn't be surprised if they're still reporting to people in California, the really higher-ups, or Maryland, Virginia, where they have quite a foothold down there. But otherwise, I think it was pretty loosely based. And the unfortunate part really was the more violent you were, that's the way you were going up the ranks, that you were showing them that you could do this. And and most of the extortion, it's kind of hard for them to extort store owners here only because there's you know not too many of them. Where their big recruiting grounds and extorting grounds were the high schools. Uh-huh. And I blame it on the school districts and the, and the school boards. And friends of mine are telling me that a year ago, two years ago, that school boards, high schools are sending uh, home letters that say, you know, your, uh, your kids should not dress in red clothing. Well, really? You know, I thought this was the United States of America. I, d- I didn't know you could tell them what not to wear. Well, you don't want to wear that because MS-13 will perceive that as an enemy gang. Hmm. And that's what they've done to these kids. There's two or three radio cars at the high schools in uh, Brentwood, Central Islip, and Bayshore every morning and every day that they get out. But it's not like you can follow every kid home when they're getting on a bus or they're walking to 10 different neighborhoods. Yeah, um, really. So that's a tough it- one. Yeah, no, that's a tough one. But I think what their major thing that they bring to organized crime is they're the muscle, they're the violent guys. So, and you know, they can be paid by anybody. So, you know, whether it be the Latin Kings, I mean, right, right now they're still at odds with them, but I have to, you know, they, they do some of their muscle work. But it's amazing. I think as the closer you get to the border, to the south, I think you're getting a more command and control down there. 
than Long Island. And the good news on Long Island right now is Suffolk County, they're inoperable. Unfortunately, Nassau County, right next door, that is a huge base out of Hempstead, Long Island. And they got a pretty good structure there, command structure. But once again, it's really based on how violent you can be, not how much money you can bring in, which, as you would know, well, it's great if you're going to be the muscle and you're going to be violent, but right, bottom line is to bring in money. Yeah. In most of your traditional organized crime things, the moneymaker, you always got the bad guys who have the muscle, but the moneymakers are the ones that keeps their head down and doesn't draw any attention and just makes money. Those are the guys that, that become important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 100%. And the narcotics is certainly there. Probably some loan sharking as well. And the extorting of, hey, you know, we just, you know, you just got into town, so we're going to help you out here. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> as you know, like you had uh, reference to Black Hand, which right, a lot of people don't know is a forerunner to the mafia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the criminal organization among the immigrant population then preys on them, but they also, like, kind of help them, too. And, and in some manner, they more hip and more un- understand, you know, local customs and what's going on and businesses. And, sure. and so they can, but they also will extort money from them and then and use them to further their own ends. Like if they wanted a, a drug house ran or a safe house for to hold drugs or something, then they've got a whole immigrant population that is pretty much doesn't trust the established police or established governments because where they come from couldn't trust any kind of law enforcement or any kind of governmental agency. So they bring that distrust of right. police with them and your criminals then can prey on that. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the population of El Salvadorians in Suffolk County is so large that they actually have a Salvadorian consulate in Brentwood, Long Island. Wow. I'll be darned. Yeah, it's incredible. I guess they brought... <laughs> They brought the regular people who then among them, they brought the gangs, the same social problems that they had down in uh, El Salvador along with them. That's crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I could give you probably one more example of how they were hired by other gangs. And there was a huge heroin deal in Brentwood, and he was considered probably the biggest one in Brentwood at the time. And going back to about 2008, and he did have some MS-13 gang members who were selling for him. And apparently one guy was not only stealing the product, he was stealing the money and blah, blah, blah. So he has him whacked. And so he's killed in a car. They set the car on fire. And now the friends of this gentleman who was stealing the uh, stealing the product and ripping this dealer off, they decide that they're going to kill the dealer. Yeah. And it happened to be in my sector, which I did not appreciate. So <laughs> uh, you're, you're familiar with the, the Planet Fitness franchises throughout the country, right? Oh, yeah. So I actually was kind of a retirement car for me in 2008. I was kind of done with, you know, knocking heads and doing all that stuff, right? So I get a call that shooting at Planet Fitness, Sunrise Highway, Bayshore, and I'm thinking, oh, oh, that's interesting. So when I get there, it had been an AK-47 that was used. They had it on video. The gym probably had 50 people in it. And Oh, yeah. It was like 11 o'clock at night, and two people were down, and thinking to myself, gee, what is going on? I just can't believe that these networks would just pull up to the gym and start spraying rounds. Sure enough, there's a guy that comes up behind me, and he goes, hey, officer, what's uh, what's going on? I'm like, why? Who are you? What are you doing here? What's your name? He turned out to be the target. Huh. Yeah, he was the heroin dealer. <laughs> so I just slapped cuffs on him, put him in the back of my car. We're looking at the video, 
And sure enough, the guy that in the back of my car had been on a treadmill, he was the target. And he just turned tail, as is an elbows, and went out the back door, came back around. He wanted to see if he had been caught on tape, I guess. Yeah. But it was a happy ending that he got about 25 years for heroin trafficking. So Somebody was already working a case on him, sounds like, on the heroin trafficking. Now, these, oh, yeah. and, and these were MS-13 people that had been working for him. Exactly. Uh, that was their retaliation. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you what, that's not the first story. I've, I heard one right here locally. A guy used sure. to run marijuana from the border up here for one of the cartels. Told me a story. Sure. He's out of it now, but he told me a story a few years ago that one of their local local dealers that had a bar in this area thought he was all that and he just refused to pay him one time probably maybe found another source or supply and, and he said these guys brought up from down in south texas they brought up two carloads of people like about eight people all together and they went to this guy's business and surrounded it and then went in and had a little talk with him and said then look outside and there's all these guys outside just like the tv with uzis or uh, you know those kinds of you know, those ak's and, and all those fancy big time guns just like in the movies <laughs> And, you know, this guy didn't have any reason to lie to me about that. Or, you know, I wasn't even going to use it on the podcast or interview with him because he's still in witness protection. So I'm not going <laughs> to, well, I didn't really want to get in with him. And, and I tell you, I told him, I said, I'm afraid of those cartels myself. <laughs> hey, they got a lot of reach. I, mean, <laughs> I know. So that's, yeah. uh, I tell you what, it's a crazy world. It is a crazy, crazy world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we also, I mean, being a suburb of, you know, Probably the biggest city in the world that the Latin Kings are basically their headquarters is in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, but they have their mothers or their children out in, out in Brentwood. So we would see them all the time and we got threats and we didn't care. We were going to do what we had to do. And in the late nineties, early two thousands, even today, if you want to target uh, a Long Island cop, you're really, you're really asking for trouble because it's going to be taken seriously, and unfortunately, it should be taken seriously in every municipality. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. What about the facial tattoos? That's what I always think of when I think of these El Salvadorian, Central American gangbangers or gang members. Did you see much of that, or did they? Those guys are so easily identified. I mean, you just see a guy, and say, well, you know, this is who you are, dude. <laughs> They're so identifiable that one of the first fairly uh, high-level guys that I've arrested, who, I mean, he was just, I, I don't know how he could run, you know, a, a little league team, let alone a gang. He's giving me a bad name. I turn him around, I toss him, and uh, sure enough, his name is tattooed on the back of his head. <laughs> yeah. His last name. <laughs> so he goes, oh, yeah, you got me. You got me. I'm like, you got to be kidding, right? But yeah, you know, the tattoo structure, it's not like in the, you know, the Russian organized gangs where there's a little more of a, a little more of a hierarchy to it. I would say with the MS guys, it's more of bluster and uh, things of that nature. It's not like uh, you're, you know, you're going to have to kind of recognize them. Maybe that's different today. But I mean, the tattoos were just, they were all over. And I found it with the other gang, as I'm sure you did that. So with the, the Latin Kings and the Crips, the bloods their tattoos kind of had a little more of meaning to it i would right. think yeah i remember the cubans they had remember reading things that had like a code of what particular tattoos meant on a cuban they had some meaning and, and i know the russians do too so right 
They don't have that. You know, what you're telling me is that uh, all those tattoos these guys got, and they're noted. I mean, I've seen these pictures of them with their whole face practically covered with tattoos. Oh, absolutely. But they don't really mean, they don't really have kind of a meaning to that that anybody's ever figured out. They're just random. They want to be tattooed and look scary, I guess. I think that's more the case. I'm sure there is some kind of, you know, uh, rhyme or reason to it, some sort of way. But I don't really remember any of our gang guys being so serious about the MS-13 tattoos as opposed to the other guys. And, I mean, you could know every tattoo in the world. If you don't know how to talk to a gangster, you're in trouble, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I saw more guys, you know, that, oh, you know, I know this graffiti and I know this. Okay, that's great. But uh, do you know how to lock them up? (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) Yeah, I remember yeah. there was a guy when the whole Bloods and Crips got going. He was a national expert on interpreting the graffiti. And it was huge because these cities in the Midwest that weren't used to that, all of a sudden we have this strange graffiti appearing and everybody's trying to figure out the meaning of it. And I got into that with, I was in the attack unit. I was back out in patrol when I first got promoted to sergeant and I'd gone to a SWAT team or attack unit. And we got assigned to the LA Boys Task Force because they were just appearing. So we started looking at this graffiti thing. And by the end we figure out it's mainly doesn't have that much meaning it's mainly a couple of young kids that go around they might write the 31st street crips but they're just two kids or three kids <laughs> and in the end right it, yeah it didn't really mean all that much it wasn't that big a deal as they the expert from la was trying to but people were petrified i'm telling you people in the neighborhood are petrified my neighborhood we started having it i don't live way out in the suburbs i live over in the city and we started having it showing up around here on any wall that wasn't painted you'd have that damn stuff show up and mainly it was just a couple three kids that wanted to go out and tag stuff oh yeah i've seen many a guy parlay a career into that stuff <laughs> <laughs> we had a guy as well and he was you know traveling around the country yeah and, giving uh, talks on that kind of a thing oh yeah 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 all right david we're up here about 45 minutes so let's uh maybe come back and talk about russian organized crime and your experience with that because i know you speak and translate russian is that correct i'm a little rusty now <laughs> yeah. and my at my best, I would have never done a homicide or a good rape because if they got me on the stand with an interpreter, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, I did a lot of the fraud. At one point, I could actually take a statement in Cyrillic. So yeah, I did the fraud. I did some assault cases. They called me out for a domestic, which you know, because you know, they couldn't make heads or tails of <laughs> yeah. whatever was going I, on. But, I know, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, I just tried my best, and I was pretty into it. I would say I probably went for about a good eight years from the late nine, you know, ninety ninety eight to maybe like oh five oh six. All right. Okay, David Paul, he has a book, Unearthing a Serial Killer. If you're interested in a a pretty macabre story, as you guys heard from the start of this podcast, why go out and get that book from Amazon. David, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, Gary, I appreciate it. If I could just throw one more thing sure, out to you. Sure, go we, ahead. We also have a Facebook page that's only been up for about uh, six, seven weeks. Okay. And, uh, it's uh, Unearthing a Serial Killer, and that's leading up to a limited podcast that we believe will be out sometime. Oh, really? Oh, you're going to do, you got a podcasting partner, you're going to do uh, one of those limited gonna, ones? That's cool. We're just going to do Unearthing a Serial Killer and see where that leads. Yeah, okay. And yeah, we're going to do probably five 40-minute episodes. This December will be my 10th year on the project. Yeah, wow. Well, I want to give you a little piece of advice there, David, on that podcast. The serial killer horror crime podcast genre is 
it's huge. I mean, it's much more attractive to more people than organized crime. I'll tell you that from my experience. It's got a much bigger audience. So good luck with that. And if you get into it, well, I'm going to actually, I'll go like your Facebook page and I'll be able to follow that and probably listen to some of your podcasts. Hey, that's great. I really appreciate it, Gary. And congratulations on your successes here and, and on the job. And then thank you for having me on. All right. Thank you, David. Bye. Take care. Well, folks, that ends another Gangland Wire episode. I just want to thank you all for listening and for all your nice Apple podcasts and other podcast app reviews and the nice comments you make on my YouTube page and on my Facebook and questions you ask on my Facebook pages. Now, as most of you all know, I upload my Zoom interviews on YouTube so you can see what my guests look like in real life. And I also put most of those on my Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And, and in regards to those Facebook groups, I've got two. One is the Facebook page, Gangland Wire Facebook page, and the other was my podcast group. And the group is smaller, and I monitor that pretty closely. So get on that. I want to thank Ken Couture and several others for keeping fresh content on my Facebook page. If you want more mob information you can shake a stick at, just go to the Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And remember, if you support the podcast with donations, you'll get an invite to my monthly live Zoom calls where we'll share stories, answer questions, and sometimes have guest speakers. And in general, we have a good time. A lot of guys will be sitting back in their den with a cigar and, and a drink. And, and uh, we just have a really good time on those monthly Zoom calls. The main method of making a donation is on my website donate page. You can use a credit card or use PayPal. But you can also buy me a cup of coffee or shot in the beer with your Venmo app or make any donation that you want to make. If you do it on Venmo, make sure you get me an email if you want to be on my Zoom call. I asked for donations to help do my next documentary, and a lot of you guys really responded big time. And I've been able to pay people, and it's going to have a little higher production values than what I've had before. I'm getting really close to completing it. It's about Kansas City organized crime and politics. I have a title, finally. It's Boat Fraud Here Again, Politics and the Mob. And don't forget about my previous documentaries, Gangland Wire, Skimming from Las Vegas, and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War. Both of those can be purchased or rented on Amazon. Now, finally, the last thing I'm selling, and then I'll leave you all alone, is my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. Now, if you're going to get that book, you're going to find that I used a lot of the actual wiretap transcripts from the skimming investigation. And if you get the Kindle version, I got the audios from those wiretaps. And you just click on a link and you'll go to that other website and it will allow you to listen to all those wiretaps. I think that's kind of unusual. So go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. And if you don't have a Kindle, Amazon has free Kindle software for your tablet or your phone. Now I'm going to let you guys go, but first I want to say that Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration. Their programs that help veterans out with PTSD. You can get help with their hotline, 800-873-8255, and then push one. Or you can go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Thanks a lot for listening, and I must credit all of our music to our good friend and Frank Costello expert, Casey McBride from Portland, Oregon. Check out Casey's Frank Costello Facebook page, Uncle Frank's Place. Thanks, Casey.